0: One of the things I really like about Austin is the amazing characters you run into. I was meeting my graduate students at the Violet Crown Social Club in East Austin. They arrived before I did, and they texted me. They said, grab a pizza from the truck outside and meet us in the bar. So I was in line trying to get pizza, and there was a guy in front of me making a huge commotion. So Somebody next to me said, Is that Ron Jeremy? And I said, well, I don't know, because I had never heard the name Ron Jeremy. So this person goes into the bar before I do. I follow him in. I sit down with my students, and they say, Mike, do you know who that guy is? And I said, oh, yeah, that's Ron Jeremy. And they all knew who it was. And I said, but who the heck is Ron Jeremy? And then they explained that he was a porn star. They brought him over and told him how we studied sex and animals, And Mr. Jeremy said that if we ever had any questions about human sex, we should just give him a call. This is Mike Ryan, and this is I Love You So Much.
1: Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if
2: it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley.
3: I'm Omar Gaiaga.
2: And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's episode, our film critic friend, Joe Gross, talks with us about
1: Ready Player One, the geeky pop culture mashup movie from Steven Spielberg, based on the novel by Knight Ernest Klein. Does the movie live up to the book's vision of the future?
3: If you've ever wanted recipes for Mexican martinis, Central Texas brisket, and Barb Armstrong dip all in one book, Austinite Paula Forbes has you covered with The Austin Cookbook. She joined us in the studio to explain why Austin's food culture is so hot right now, even outside Texas.
2: And Eric Webb joins us for a look at one of our favorite TV shows, Netflix reboot of Queer Eye, which has just been renewed for a second season.
1: And we'll conclude with The Toast, a set of recommendations for things we think you should be checking out right now. But let's begin with Joe, who is at the world premiere of Ready Player One with Steven Spielberg in attendance at South by Southwest.
3: Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing? So, Joe and I both got to go to the world premiere at South by Southwest. We, we recapped South by in our last episode, but this is one we kind of held on to because the movie is about to open up in theaters as you hear this. Uh, Addie, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective as someone who hasn't seen the movie, who's only seen trailers. What do you think this movie is?
2: Well, like a n- kind of a neutron so basically kind of a blur between real life and video game reality in the future you know I last time I was talking about movies I was talking about Jumanji which is also kind of like that and I don't put this movie in that category of sort of blended it, you know I saw a preview for it just last weekend and it looks visually stunning and I love the starkness you know the way they use VR and sort of the stark dystopian nature of it but you tell me what you is kind it of doing. nailed it. You know that? <laughs> no, no that, was, that was actually
4: pretty good. Let me ask you this: Have your your kids haven't read the book? Have no, they? no, okay. but
2: they're really curious about this. Movie.
4: It started out as a book by an Austinite named Ernie Klein that came out in, I believe, 2011, and was this sort of surprise smash hit, especially among sort of the YA set. Mm. Um, and the funny thing about the book is it's laden with references to 1980s popular culture. So it was there was a dog wagging the tail aspect when it came out that Steven Spielberg was making it into a movie, and uh, cause, King of
2: Eighties Pop Culture.
4: Well, yeah, <laughs> and so you know I, I think um, you know I think Ernie just about passed out when uh, when that came to be, and so it was very interesting seeing it in a packed theater during South by Southwest when everybody's sort of sitting there and suddenly Steven Spielberg comes out. And is in the room with you. It's one of the very few times I've ever heard Janet Pearson even a little bit flustered introducing a director. Like this is a woman who's worked with some of the most important people in American cinema for the Mm -hmm. past twenty five years and even she was like, uh, well, hey, uh Steven Spielberg and like Spielberg walks. Now
2: would you have known that it was a Steven Spielberg movie if you didn't you know, if you didn't already know that coming in? Does it have his fingerprints all over it?
4: Yes. It's very much a Spielberg film. In fact, before it um before it screened, he said, I just want everybody to know um this is not a film that we've made. This is a movie. And, uh, you know, it was in a room full of filmmakers and they sort of got what he was saying. That This is this was a spectacle. Mm-hmm. This is a big, splashy spectacle. And it's about a kid who lives in kind of a, a slum area of Columbus. Right. At Columbus, yeah. Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, uh, about uh, 40 years from now, 30, 40 years from now, uh, when um, it's you know, the U.S. is kind of a wreck. And uh, he is one of the have-nots and lives in a trailer home that is like a, an RV that are st- that's stacked in big in big stacks. Mm-hmm. They're just stacks of RVs that are like you know uh, welded together, and that's what you live in. And so a lot of people spend a lot of time in something called the Oasis, which is a VR reality. And I'm not somebody who is crazy about. The interaction between live action and CGI—it tends to give me a little bit of a headache. The thing that was sort of wonderful about this is that you are supposed to be—the characters are supposed to be in a video game, so it feels visually consistent. And there's almost no VR. Um, there's almost no CGI in the parts where in that take place in the real world. Is that yeah, what you're it's, it's, that
3: it's not. It's not mixed together. I, right. I mean, there's only a little bit at the end where. The creator of this world right. kind of can kind of blends with it, but yeah, for the most part, it, it's pretty much like it's this or that. Yeah, um, exactly. what, what I was kind of surprised by with, with Spielberg was that um, you know this was the first time in a while that I've seen a Spielberg movie where it felt like he was having a blast, like he's having fun. Totally, that it's not as you know, it's not the post, it's <laughs> not Bridge of Spies. You know, it, this is a movie that's pure let's just get the toys out of the toy box and throw them at each other and and big explosions and see what happens and it's 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 got some amazing set pieces and um they actually urge the audience not to reveal some of those set pieces because there's one in the middle of the movie and you'll know it when you see it that is about as stunning a thing as I've seen in film in, in the last couple of years, it's, and it's, and I can't even say what it no, references. No, it
4: was completely out of nowhere because I don't think there's anything remotely like that in the book.
3: I don't think so, and it's and it's basically Spielberg doing an homage to another great filmmaker that you will instantly recognize when it when it happens, and you're just like, this is a ten minute mind blowing sequence that I could not have seen coming in a million years. No, it's, it's so good.
4: It reminds you just how extraordinary unnatural film. I mean there there are certainly weaknesses in the film, but you know it reminds you how natural a filmmaker he is, how just how good he is at doing this big splashy stuff and um, it's it it works way better than it than I, it should have. I think there were a lot of people who were like, "Oh no, this is this is going to work." <laughs> and uh when it when you know people were coming out going oh it was actually pretty good there were all these tweets that said um, you know um, uh, you know uh what do you you know what did you expect? It's Steven Spielberg, like making a movie about Steven Spielberg.
3: Uh,
2: Omar, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, sure. How did you like how it depicted our use of VR in the future?
3: You know, <laughs> I had a couple of problems with the book, and I had a couple of problems with the movie, and that, and it started with that, with like that the people in the movie are still using the same kind of VR headsets that we're using right now, and and you so know, you think the, that's the only improvement yeah. <laughs> is the software within it. But then I then I kind of got. I mean, the movie won me over after the first probably fifteen minutes. Like once we got to this, this big first kind of racing set piece. I'm like, all right, my defenses are down. You got me. That This is yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, at the beginning, I'm like, yeah, that's that's not what they would be using 40 years in the future. Although, you know, if the economy tanked and everything kind of stopped technologically, then yeah, that's kind of where we'd be. Yeah,
4: I thought that, I actually thought the, I mean, I know a lot less about this than you do, but I thought the dichotomy between the rich and the poor in terms of how they access this world was actually done pretty well. Yeah,
3: yeah, that the, that rich people have these like full body immersive things and everybody else is just using the the clunky mm-hmm. kind yeah, of VR headset. Cool. And
4: having not
2: seen it, I mean, I'm already thinking about just what does it mean when your life the the highest points of your life take place in VR and if mm-hmm. your your life outside of the VR existence is sad and stacked in a mobile home outside of Columbus, Ohio and yeah. you're just living this really you know, downtrodden life. Of course, you're going to escape to the VR, and and that's where you're going to exist primarily. And yeah. that's it sounds like a cautionary tale if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Um, and I and I and I love the idea that my kids are going to see this and be thinking about well, what is virtual reality and what is reality and how do I make the real reality matter?
3: That's underlined very clearly yeah, <laughs> by the end of the movie. <laughs> pretty direct about and, that. And Spielberg kind of even after the movie is like, we wanted to make a movie that yeah. where we know we very clear distinction between that reality is where the, where the good stuff is, not, not virtual reality.
4: And you know. He um, he said at one point during his—I can't remember if it was in the introduction or after the film. He said, you know, I make two, two kinds of movies. I make movies where I'm directing from behind the camera and movies where I'm directing from the audience. Mm-hmm. And this was very much the second kind that, you know, this is a—this is an entertainment. And it's funny to think about how, you know, he did the principal photography for this— And then there was a tremendous amount of of, um, post-production that needed to be done. He knocked out The Post, the movie The Post, while Ready Player One was in post-production.
3: Which he also did with Schindler's List and uh, Jurassic Park back in the day. Which is
4: insane. I mean, he... he, Two very
3: different kinds of movies. Yeah, it it. it took
4: nine months from the time he got the script from The Post for The Post to it being on screen. Nine months. That's it.
3: He just knocked what that. What
4: magician? Th- yeah, Modern he just magician. he just knocked the thing I'm out. I'm just
2: glad while... he's still knocking him out and and doing well and doing films that it's you respect.
3: It's wild, you know, when he came out on stage. I I and I was not and I kind of had an idea that he'd be there. You know, we kind of all sure, kinda it was speculated. the premiere. Yeah, and but when he came out on stage, I had a very emotional reaction to seeing him in the room. <laughs> I really, I mean, I grew up on ET, and you know, I grew up on all his movies. E.T. was my favorite movie, you know, until I was probably 12 years old. And just seeing the guy on stage that was the architect of all of my dreams, you know, up to that age, like I had a very emotional reaction. You
4: could Mm. see the filmmakers in the the audience like becoming a little unglued because (laughs) it was just like, that's Steven freaking Spielberg.
3: And then for him to say like, I'm nervous to show it to you guys. It was
4: was very sweet. He was very sweet about it. Like, you know, and then apparently he did. Uh, I mean, I I, I think um, he did some like South by Southwesty stuff. I think he went out to Westworld.
3: I believe so. I well, I know definitely the the um, Elon Musk did, and a couple other. I don't know yeah. if Spielberg actually made it out there, but
4: it, uh, you know that's – it was uh, a trip having him here. It, <laughs> it was very cool, and it was it was. Uh, I, I think the I think the film is gonna gonna find an audience.
3: I think people will be surprised by the good stuff that's in it because, I mean, if you're only going by the book, which has some pretty amazing set pieces, I mean, the movie sort of tops what's in the book. It was a
4: very, very smart adaptation. It lost a couple of things that I kind of wish they had emphasized in the film. But on the whole, uh, I was super impressed by what they kept and what they fixed. This was, you know, this was a very high end, very professional you know, top of the line motion picture.
3: People kept asking on Twitter, you know, like, well, what? how was it? How was it? And the only word I could keep coming up with was it was fun. It was it's really, really fun. fun. Didn't all make sense. Didn't all work no, perfectly. It doesn't. <laughs> but it's a big bag of fun. Like it is trying to do nothing but entertain you in a fun way. And it
4: never felt long. I I was a little worried that it was, you know, it's standard blockbuster length of like two hours and 20 minutes. It's like this is going to be a hike, but sure enough, well, it did not feel long.
2: I know what I'm seeing this weekend.
3: Yeah, Spielberg's pacing. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Austin has been known for barbecue and tacos, but that reputation has changed in the past decade. We chat with Austin cookbook author Paula Forbes to find out how and why. Uh, You are primarily a food writer and a cookbook reviewer, Mm -hmm. but now you are a cookbook author.
5: I know it's it's crazy.
2: (laughs) Will you tell me a little bit about how the Austin cookbook came to be and just the process of figuring out what story it was that you wanted to tell?
5: Mm -hmm. So uh, this book opportunity came up when I was living in New York, actually, Um, and uh, I was not really a fan of living in New York. Um, I had lived in Austin for about ten years prior to that, and you know, anyway, the opportunity to write this book came up, and it just seemed like a sign from the universe that I was supposed to move back to Austin and just really dig in deep to the food scene here, which wow. is, of course, something I had written about for years um, prior to living in New York. So, the story I want to tell with the book, I think it was. I wrote this book the first year after I moved back from New York, um, and it was really an opportunity to re-engage with the Austin food scene and um, re-fall in love with it. It was about, uh, yeah, re-falling in love with Austin and re-falling in love with its food and its restaurants, because the scene here is just so good and deep and vast and broad and, well, and it
2: maybe took leaving to New York for however long you were there to help appreciate what it is that we have here exactly and, you know much has been made about the Tex-Mex and barbecue and the evolution out of that but um, you know from that uh, you know both one foot here and with one foot of the outsider's perspective what is it that still makes Austin stand out I mean because Portland has a great food scene LA I mean all these cities have ramen restaurants and poke restaurants and mm-hmm. Korean barbecue and all that stuff but what is it about Austin's that's special
5: I think that there there are so many things. So first of all, it's that we draw on this incredibly deep food tradition. You mentioned the barbecue, you mentioned the Tex-Mex. Um, and, and we have this, you know, deep, deep history of tradition we can draw on. There's that, but then there's also combined with the fact that Austin has grown a lot over the past, you know, decade or so. And that has brought in a lot of new influences. And I think that the most interesting food in Austin is where these things combine and intersect. And sometimes they disagree with each other. But mm-hmm. like. Food, the best food happens where cultures mix. Um, That's really neat. So you yeah. ended
2: up uh, interviewing several chefs and restaurant owners. Do You mm-hmm. have some of your own recipes that are in there. Mm-hmm. Talk us through sort of is it a restaurant cookbook? Is it a home cook cookbook?
5: Is it a souvenir cookbook? Sure. I think it's all of the above. Um, I really tried to have a broad representation of what Austin is. And, you know, I know this city is so many different things to so many different people. And I really wanted everyone to at least get a sample of what they think of as their Austin. So there's... There are um, about sixty-five restaurants in the book. Um, most of them have one recipe. Several have more than one recipe. Um, I filled in the gaps with my personal recipes for a few things um, because you know I really wanted to make sure we had a verde enchilada sauce recipe, or I really wanted to make sure that I you know have a what I think is a very good queso recipe. Um, so, so it's a little bit of both. Um, as far as the restaurant recipes go. Um, I've I've been saying it's like the easiest restaurant cookbook I've ever encountered because um, they're restaurant recipes, but they're not intimidating. The most intimidating things are probably uh, barbecue, but barbecue is barbecue. It's mm-hmm. not easy Not to easy. make. Yeah. Um, and it gives you an,
2: knowing how it's made gives you an appreciation exactly. for why you are paying $22 a pound for a brisket. Yeah, exactly.
5: So, um but beyond that, you know, I think there's something that everyone can make in here whether it's a salsa or it's, you know, a taco filling or it's chicken fried steak or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So. That's
2: really neat. And I really appreciated you didn't rely on cliché. You know, you you dug into the old tried and true uh, establishments, but you also hit some of the new the new people who are influencing the city in a really positive way, and, you know, the people who are building up the community, mm-hmm. rather than trying to sort of steal the spotlight for themselves.
5: Right, yeah. I, I tried to have a mix. I tried to, you know, tip my hat to the old school places, like I mentioned, the chicken fried steak. We have the Broken Spoke chicken fried steak recipe in there, and then um, we've got a bunch of the newer places. We've got Odd Duck, we've got uh, Taco Deli, we've got... There's a Contigo recipe for okra and <laughs> uh-huh. walnut. Was it A stir fry? It's It's like a skillet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sauté. That is actually my favorite recipe in the whole cookbook. Well, I think we might be running that of the paper, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, that might be so the excerpt. Yeah, It's so good. It's so good. I love that dish. Yeah. So
2: you review a ton of cookbooks. I would love to just ask you about your thoughts on how you've seen cookbooks change. And, you know, there's a lot of single subject cookbooks. And in some ways, you know, people feel overwhelmed with the recipes that are on the Internet. But I think you and I would both agree that there's still a place for cookbooks. Oh, yeah. absolutely. What would you say that place is?
5: I mean, I think that what you get with a cookbook, is you get um, the authors uh, uh, a slice of how they cook. So you you have the – it's not just about the individual recipes, which is what you get online if you Google how to make a burger, Um, but you get this author's – Collection and their outlook on cooking and kitchens and how, Mm -hmm. you know, their kitchen functions. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think you also get, you know, a beautiful object, which is, you know, not nothing. Um, I'm so impressed with cookbook design these days has just like gone totally nuts, and there are just these gorgeous things out there um and of course the photography like a, a cookbook is nothing without good photographs mm-hmm. um shout out to robert strickland who did the photographs for my book really great really gorgeous. great pictures yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i love them um so yeah I that's think really it's
2: cool i will the say package. some of the, uh, some of the beautiful books um on my i will say you test a lot of the recipes in your for your cookbook reviews mm-hmm. and you are you know good design and good recipes are not Necessarily one and the same. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also love, um, you know, when you see these trends that come through, you know, probiotic drinks or, you know, turmeric, you know, a dedicated cookbook to Mm turmeric. You can really see how food trends are affecting American culinary evolution. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a service you know, in 20 years from now, you're going to be able to look back at all the books that came out and, and be able to track how food evolved. Yeah. That's kind of a neat thing that I appreciate about cookbooks. Well,
5: like right now, um, if you look at the bestseller list for cookbooks, five out of the top 10 are instant pot books. What? Which is crazy. Now, do you have an instant pot? I don't. Okay. I like pa- cooking slow. Okay, Paula
2: and I are probably the only food writers in America <laughs> who do not have freaking instant
5: pots. Yeah, I don't know. I like I like having something simmering on my stove I do. I all mean, day. I
2: know. I, yeah, there's something old school about it. But I, I think that at some point I'm going to get worn down. <laughs> I think this might be the year, but I, we'll Yeah,
5: see. I think at some point I'm going to have to review an instant Just, for, just for your work. And, yeah. yeah. And if people
2: want to follow you and find out more, how can they do that?
5: Um, I'm on Twitter at Paula Forbes. I'm on Instagram at paula underscore forbes um, and yeah and if you are um, a
2: real cookbook nor- nerd and you've enjoyed this segment may I suggest signing up for her, her newsletter
5: that she just launched yes uh, <laughs> and stained
2: page news and, uh, just google stained page news and yeah it's also
5: it. pinned on my twitter account So oh that's awesome well thanks yeah. so much for coming in paula thank you for having me
2: You're here with Eric Webb for a web report. Eric, what is blowing up the internet this week?
6: We're here to talk about Queer Eye, which if you had come to me last year and said, oh, they're going to reboot Queer Eye for the straight guy and it's going to be the only thing anyone can talk about, I would have said, oh... How silly. But no, it's true. Everyone has queer eye fever, including myself.
3: Whew,
2: I'm fanning myself right now. It's so awesome. Well, <laughs> As
6: am I. Well, guys, I
3: have a confession to make. I have not seen the new version on Netflix. I've just been slammed. Not 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 lack of interest. I I'm, I'm down. But you remember the original. I was obsessed with the original. Okay. I watched it from the very beginning. I think I fell off. Like everybody else did after this, you know, maybe second or third season, but I watched the hell out of the first season. So, why don't you
2: remind listeners if they don't know what was the original Queer Eye?
3: Well, this was a show, and and this was in the age of the rising age of metrosexuals when this was just starting to be a thing in the early 2000s. I think from 2003 to 2007 uh, was the show on Bravo, and it was a show where five gay men would come into the life of a typically schlubby uh, straight (laughs) man and get his stuff in order. And, Mm -hmm. you know, usually it was like, know fashion tips get your house in order uh moisturize always moisturize (laughs) and so and what was the other uh food food yeah Uh, ted
2: allen got his start there well so
3: there were five of them what was the fifth thing it
6: was food fashion culture design
3: and Grooming. grooming grooming there you go there you go. So, you know, like, at the time, you know, the, the metrosexual movement was just starting. Some men were just starting to think about things like moisturizer and, yeah. and cooking decent food in their house for, for their families. FYI, this
2: is about- when, like, Axe Body Spray was coming out, if I remember
3: correctly. So, so that's what so that's what I'm curious about. Ha- having not seen the new Netflix version, what has changed? What's different from this version from the original?
6: So for one thing, they've dropped the For the Straight Guy, right? So now it's just Queer Eye. Um, mm-hmm. And there's actually one episode where there is a gay man that they, that the, the new Fab Five gives the Fab Five treatment to. And so this is really a a queer eye for the 21st century. It's a little more woke. Can I say that? I think it's a little more woke. Um, It's the same categories. You have your culture guy, who uh, is Karamo on this new version, design with Bobby, fashion with Tan, and then the two remaining members of the Fab Five who have spawned the most memes on the internet and who kind of, I think, are really the breakout stars. Mm -hmm. Food wise, you've got Anthony, which more on Anthony later. And then grooming wise, you've got Jonathan Van Ness, who, if you've ever watched Game of Thrones, it's a Game of Thrones recap show. He's a celebrity hairdresser in Hollywood, and he has someone in his chair, and he recaps each episode of Game of Thrones. But in his like signature very gay, very gay fig- style, signature, yeah. incredibly <laughs> gloriously gay way. Yep. And he's got this like flowing brown hair and this like brown beard and he's just unapologetically himself. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of had a breakout. He has his own catch. He came in with catchphrases. He has his own shtick going in, but it's not annoying. And he's all about not being afraid to be too much because sometimes So there was a BuzzFeed quiz that came out that said sometimes you're a little too much if you got Jonathan and Jonathan responded to that and was like what exactly is too much too much what Mm -hmm. maybe you're not being enough
2: Mm -hmm. it was very Adam Rippon of Mm -hmm. him yes very much so very
6: much so now, now was
3: there any thought To having the originals Come back Have they made an appearance Or anything like that Or, or is it like Menudo there Or like once you're behind, out You're out
2: There's a behind the scenes Dinner where <laughs> the old guys And the new guys All get together And have uh, you know a, a meal And they talk about Some of the differences And and that gives you A little bit of context But it's very short
6: It's only a couple minutes mm-hmm. long So, Well and Anthony Is actually the protege Of Ted Allen mm. So he kind of Came up through that through, through those ranks He was
2: a private chef For a while mm-hmm. And it's beginning A lot of heat For not being a very good chef And I think all of that Is totally misfounded He is doing his best to help teach uh people who do not cook to do something as easy as guacamole you're not going to show him these like you know high-end dishes so right so back off on Antony
6: folks leave Antony alone so note on <laughs> Anthony before we kind of move on to sort of what makes this new queer eye so special for right now in 2018 uh Antony is sort of the heartthrob of the show he's got these classic boyish good looks we have said that he looks like if you took John Mayer and ran him through a Brita filter, or maybe <laughs> if you smelted him to remove the impurities from his ore. So he's he's I'm, got that look. I'm and, still at Brita filter. I'm still trying to catch up. Even
2: <laughs> Antony's in on the joke. You need to go check out his uh, Instagram to see him pose. Oh, like pretty much. Perfect replica of one of John Mayer's album covers.
6: Yes, yes. He's... And
2: Omar could not tell the difference.
6: No, that the two looks pictures. completely photoshopped. Yep. That yep. Looks like... <laughs> Take the Anthony challenge. But let's talk
2: about why do we really love the show? I mean, I think Jonathan is spectacular. I think Karamo is one of also my favorites. Um, there are only eight episodes, and you know, I think all of them are hits, especially in the early. I think the last one is a little bit of a, a lesser exciting episode. If we really want to nitpick about mm. it, but why do you think people are so drawn to it right now in 2018?
6: So I think since the original show came out, I wasn't allowed to watch the original show uh, because the climate I grew up in was very anti-gay. I am now an adult man who is also gay. And so I think the country has followed not quite a similar path. Not everyone in the country has come out of the closet. But, uh, you know, since the original show was on, gay marriage has been legalized. We've made so many strides in LGBT rights and visibility that now there was some quote that said in the original show they were fighting for, you know, uh, acceptance. And now they're, I think, fighting for understanding or tolerance or something like that. It's not so much the point of like, hey, look, there's gay people. It's like, you know, there's gay people, but let's, through this show, figure out and show people, hey, we're not so different, you and I, Mm -hmm. just because we have these differences in other ways. We're all still humans. There's all still things about hopes and fears and shortcomings and tragedies and triumphs that really unites us. And you really see that, especially, I think, in the earlier episodes of this new uh, season, there's just so many really heartrending human stories, um, and they're based in Georgia in this new season. They're like Fab Five Loft is in Atlanta, but they kind of travel around to some smaller towns to communities, you know, and, and honestly, there's one episode like where they're very explicit in saying, yes, the guy they're making over is was a Trump voter, and so it's all sort of about uniting, not dividing, and kind of bridging those gaps, and I think that's something we really we need right now. I think it's something that a lot of people are feeling that they do need, and it's it's very, very emotionally affecting. I think in a very surprising way when you watch it, because I was not expecting to cry as much as I did watching this makeover that, show. That is the
3: one thing I've heard consistently, not having watched it, is that everybody I know that's seen it is bawling. <laughs> as they yeah. and that's and that's actually kept me from watching it a little bit because I'm like, do, am I ready? To sit down and have a good cry. Like, I got to prepare myself a little bit to <laughs> watch this. Mm-hmm.
2: I love it because we're watching men, straight men, who in this country are still not allowed to have the full range of emotions that women are that this show gives them permission to, and you watch within an hour somebody go from being closed and you know thinking that they have to perform to these masculine ideals to realizing that they can be still be masculine and still be straight, but with a more nuanced way. And I think, conversely, the Queer Eye guys can come in, and they are also picking up energy off of the people that they're transforming, and they are performatively, I mean, they're more masculine in this series than I would say they were in the last one, and more gender-bending. Like, you wouldn't know that half of the Queer Eye guys are,
6: are gay. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is interesting how the Fab Five and the new version, they do perform male gender in all these kind of different ways. You have, you know, people like Anthony who there's all kinds of women on Twitter and stuff saying, like, oh gosh, I wish he wasn't gay. Like I would never believe it or whatever. I feel like I heard that just today. <laughs> you might have heard that just today, Omar. And then you have someone like Jonathan who's just so over, he's just fabulous and he just is himself and he just is calling everyone honey. He's like, oh, she loves, she loves the salt scrub and things like that and he's so unapologetically himself uh, and he... One thing I thought was really sweet is there was one episode with uh, the dad who had all the kids Mm -hmm. and these little girls and Jonathan just connects with them so much and it was really sweet, I thought, to see them connecting with this guy who is probably showing them a version of masculinity a version of manhood that they haven't seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just think it's cool that it's... There's nothing about stereotypes in this show, I don't think. It's just showing these are people. There's no right way to be straight. There's no right way to be gay. There's no right way to be a man. There's no right way to be a woman. All that matters is that you're being the best version of yourself that like makes you a happy, fulfilled person.
2: So we just found out this week that Queer Eye got renewed for a second season. Mm-hmm. All very excited. Uh, and I have mentioned this before, and I'll say it again here. I want to see a women version of this where we have five lesbians who make over, uh, you know, Heterosexual woman who is performative in her femininity to help women understand that they also don't have to meet other people's expectations of how they should behave in society. But, uh, you know, Netflix, you got plenty of money for that. And I, I know some pretty badass lesbians who could be on that show if you need any recommendations.
6: It just seems like the natural spinoff at this point, honestly. Yeah. It seems like it's been
3: a big hit. And I would not, I mean, if they spun it off into something else or create another version of it, I would not be surprised. It seems like it's doing really well for Netflix just based on how much I'm hearing about it.
6: I would like to point out that I had actually canceled my Netflix account before it came out because I was trying to cut some costs and I was trying to do more fulfilling things with my time than binge watch The Crown for the second (laughs) time. But then when it came out, I borrowed my friend's Netflix account and I added a separate profile on it that said, Eric is just watching Queer Eye, he promises. (laughs) So that's, it got me there.
3: Eric's paid his Netflix dues. Over over the years. I just
2: want to give one last plug. Uh, This is actually a show that I watch with my kids. And I don't know that it on the surface seems like something that you would. But, you know, I'm you know, their dad is a gender bending guy in the first place. But I I think it's really healthy for them to see all kinds of models of masculinity. And so, I mean, I'm raising boys. So that's my mom's perspective there. But I'm sure there's, you know, I've heard that lots of people end up having conversations in their homes when they watch shows like this. This happened with What Not to Wear as well, where people can come together and maybe start to unpack some maybe stickier stuff that they hadn't been able to thanks to this show
3: your kids are super woke though
2: yeah they are but you know i feel like a lot of kids these days are woke i mean Mm -hmm. we just saw this you know gun rights rally with an 11 year old giving this impassioned speech i mean the youth of today are just advancing at a really quick pace and i think culturally and and just with their internal politics as well and so i'm pretty happy to see
3: that well i am on board i will be watching this very very soon as soon as i get a a weekend where i can
6: (laughs) get a box kleenex Get, dive into it.
2: Call me right away, Omar. And <laughs> let me know what you <laughs> think. <laughs> Guys, I saw it. I saw it.
6: In the meantime, Omar, I offered to be your personal Queer Eye crew. I am, not, there's only one of me There's not five. My, my Sherpa. I'll be your Sherpa, yeah.
3: Well, Eric, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And now it's time where we recommend some stuff for you in a segment we call a Toast. Holly Mosley, want to get us started?
1: Sure. So the brand new season of Where Should We Begin? Esther Perel's podcast is out. And guys, it's so good. Former
3: I Love You So Much guest, Esther Perel. Yes,
1: yes. South by Southwest keynote speaker, amazing, brilliant TED Talker. Anyway, the first only the first three episodes have dropped at the time of this taping, but the first episode deals with um, parents who are severely estranged from their teenage daughter. I haven't listened to that one yet, but Addie, I think it's something like she's been locked in her room for a year.
2: Yeah, she's uh, she was adopted, and yeah. there's just, uh, I will say, a severe case of codependency going on in that family. Okay, okay. But what's nice about the season is it's not all romantic relationships. Yeah, no, it's, it's not all romantic relationships. Um
1: The second two that I've listened to, though, are one is a couple with children, and they are The husband has just left. He has just left the family. With no warning. With no warning. I mean, he called her on the phone. They've been together for two years. He called her and was like, bye. (laughs) Girl, bye. (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) so they're at the peak of crisis. And then the third one is so fascinating. It's um, a midlife couple. And he is this ground zero, former ground zero deacon. He went to school to become a Catholic deacon. But he also has this fetish around his partners having other partners. And so he's kind of always wanted an open marriage, not for himself, but for his partners. So the psychology of that is really
2: fascinating. He's just so darn giving. He's so giving.
1: (laughs) He's so giving. And they really tease apart that fantasy and question, is it all generosity?
2: Yeah, you know? but we just, we cannot, I've, l- I've listened to these three episodes and I just, Esther Perel, you guys know is one of our favorites and Omar's getting tired probably listening no, no, to No, 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 I, I was going to ask
3: a question is, yeah. are these like the, the real cases and the real people or oh, is yeah. it like, you know, like we change so, the names to protect the innocent?
1: Okay, so you don't know their names but their voices and stories are true as they, as Oh, so as they, as they the have actors play them No, 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 like oh. it's it's the people It is the real people oh. They're not her regular clients, it's it's pe- she told us this when she was here on I Love You So Much they have basically written in to get a free session with her Oh, gotcha. so it's their one
2: and only session with her but it is deep but that makes the, the stakes even higher because yeah. there's not going to be a follow up so she gets to the point she does not mince words and then in the podcast she jumps in and kind of gives a little bit of insight into what is going on in her mind as she is thinking about how to approach this conversation I don't know if you saw this on Instagram she's actually launched a whole social network for people in the relationship giving industry so all the therapists can come together and learn from each other it's called sessions it's another layer to her platform Uh,
3: (laughs) okay i have some i have some catching up to do (laughs) apparently well (laughs) this sounds amazing
2: omar what did you have to recommend this week yeah
3: top that (laughs) i I, I don't think i can guys i don't have any priests that want a open relationship (laughs) that i know of (laughs) i'll look into that Uh, i got two quick things one and i'm not going to belabor this one because i've heard it recommended on a couple of podcasts already so if you listen to pop culture happy hour you've already heard this nailed it is a show on netflix about baking it is like the great british baking show if with people with no talent like if if tolly me and you got in the kitchen and tried to make a a donald trump bust cake
5: (laughs) this is what it would look
3: like and what i like about the show very funny it's only a half hour the host is fantastic really funny host and it's not mean-spirited. It's it, the, the, the contestants are laughing along. You know, the, the guest <laughs> judges are laughing along. It, you know, I showed it to my kids. My kids loved it. Uh, the first episode is a, for young kids is a little racy, but if you skip to, like, the last episode, the Donald Trump one, it's just really funny. Uh, so, yeah, it's only six episodes, I believe, but it has just been renewed for a second season, like Queer Eye, so yay, more Nailed It on Netflix. Uh, that is the first recommendation. second one I'll, I'll also make quick, uh, Daniel Caesar, I don't know if you've heard him, Uh, He has a song called Best Part that's been playing a lot on R&B radio. Uh, He has a song called Japanese Denim that I am absolutely in love with. I I mean, he's mostly like acoustic-y, R&B kind of slow jams, you know, with a really amazing voice, really interesting lyrics. Uh, Japanese Denim, it's just a love song, but it's so well done and so simple and so beautiful. Uh, Look up his whole album. Daniel Caesar is fantastic. Uh, Our Friends at Breakfast for Dinner... Uh, podcast turned me on to his music and I've been listening to him pretty much nonstop on Spotify so Daniel Caesar uh, Japanese denim and my brother's actually in Japan right now so I was like hey if you're in Japan can you look for some Japanese denim and I sent him the <laughs> song and he sent me back a picture of Denham in Japan or something and uh-huh. so my brother and I have our little okay, inside yeah, jokes yes yes yes
2: I love it Well, I'll recommend this week. Uh, So summer might seem like it is a long way off. It's not at all. Um, But if you have ambitions to go camping or maybe go to Hamilton Pool, you better get on that now because Hamilton Pool reservations are open. Weekends are already filling up. Uh, I think it's through September if you want to go to this glorious, beautiful oasis green. I mean, it's just like this little cave with this big pool and the water spilling over. It's really a treasure of Central Texas, but it's so popular that now uh, during the summer months, access is limited to reservation only. So you got to get your reservation for that. Um, Enchanted Rock, almost impossible to get into. Um, get a campground there if you want to now. Omar, you're looking at Big Bend. I mean, I would, you're, you know, if you're start even thinking about um, like Thanksgiving travel, now is when you would book Big Bend.
3: I started looking at Airbnb, yeah. for and everything's booked for for like, for like October. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so. Crazy. I mean, I mean, just like the places around Big Bend, yeah, you know, the yeah. nicer places. Yeah. So it's. I it's wonder if Crowsey
1: Springs is the same thing because you don't need a reservation to get into that one, but it's also gorgeous. Oh my gosh, it is and, such a beautiful place. Um, I haven't been there in crowded. a long
2: time to find out what their admission policy is. Yeah,
1: I think the last time I went was just a few months ago, and you just like walk up and pay money and get in, but. Like, go early in the morning. Mm -hmm. But I think,
3: like, Pam LeBlanc, you know, a lot of her writing recently, I've noticed she's been kind of beating the drum about... Like, these places are filling up mm-hmm. faster than usual. It's, it seems like they're getting more and more crowded mm-hmm. as we go.
2: Well, there are just more and more people in Texas. Lots of people want to get outside. And just state parks are at a premium. So, And if you run out of luck and say you're trying to figure out where to camp on Memorial Day, start looking at private campgrounds and go ahead and book those. Even if you're not sure what the weather's going to be, it's a gamble. But, uh, you you know, it's there's really no excuse not to get into the outdoors, but it does take a little bit of planning.
1: Good tip, Addie Broyles.
3: And yes. be a happy camper. Yeah, out there.
1: Um. Okay, guys. Wow, that was <laughs> did I nailed ruin, it. Did,
3: did I ruin a toast? <laughs> <Nailed> it? <laughs> thank you, Tolly.
1: Okay, Addy, Omar, thank you for your jokes.
2: <laughs>
1: That's our show. She's Addy. He's Omar. I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin.
2: And talk to us on Twitter at LoveAustin360. I love you so much. The Austin360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com.
3: You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672.
1: This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin.
2: We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your confetti-filled cascarones. Until next week, we'll see you at a Ready Player One screening, no VR headset required.